0: Romans chapter 3, I'm beginning in verse 21 this morning. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The word of the Lord. All right, so we're going to be examining this morning the relationship between God's grace and our work. And to kind of get us into that mode, I want to share a story with you this morning. This is kind of a strange story about a woman named Anne Hutchinson, who was a British woman living in the early 1600s. And her story really does not begin with her. It begins with a man named John Cotton. John Cotton was a minister in the Church of England uh, at the same period of time. And uh, John Cotton was a thoroughly educated man. He had been Cambridge-educated had risen pretty quickly at an early age to a position of promise as a pretty well-known preacher within England. At, I think, age 27, he had become the primary rector or priest uh, at a church called St. Bol- Boltoff's in England. And um, people were coming from all over to hear John Cotton preach. So even though he was in the Church of England, or the Anglican Church... John Cotton was also a Puritan, which you've probably heard of the Puritans. If you had to read, you know, the Crucible or the Scarlet Letter or something like that when you were in high school, you've, you've at least maybe got a sense of who the Puritans are. But the Puritans were not like a Christian denomination unto themselves, per se. Really, they were a small group of people within the Church of England. And they were a group of people who felt like the Church of England needed to be purified, hence the term Puritan. So the Church of England at one point in time had been Roman Catholic. But during the reign of Henry VIII, which happened to coincide with the Protestant Reformation, the Church of England broke away from the Roman Catholic Church and became Protestant and became the Anglican Church and um, took on many of the kind of tenets of the Reformation. They were thoroughly reformed in many ways. Yet the Puritans looked at the English church and felt like it was still way too Roman Catholic. They, They looked at the way that they were worshiping and some of the things that they were doing, and they felt like the Reformation had not done enough. So they wanted to purify the church and and make it more Protestant, uh, make it even less removed from some of the pomp of Roman Catholic worship. So John Cotton was one of these Puritans, and at at points in time, the Puritans had held positions of power in England, but by the early 1630s, the monarchy was forcing many of the Puritans uh, into hiding, and some of them, they were forcing, forcing them ultimately to flee the country. And John Cotton managed to endure for a period of time by kind of keeping his head down. But eventually, in 1632, he boarded a ship along with his wife and headed for America and specifically headed for the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which wound up just being kind of a haven for Puritans to the point where the whole governmental system of the Massachusetts Bay Colony became shaped by Puritan theology and really became a theocracy of sorts. John Cotton was like welcomed with open arms in uh, Massachusetts, and actually became the second pastor of the one church that existed in Boston at the time. And so, as I said, the story isn't really about him. It's really about Anne Hutchinson. Anne Hutchinson was a British woman who became enthralled by the preaching of John Cotton while in England, and she would travel over 20 miles from her home every week to hear him preach. Uh, She was a very dominant and um, kind of outspoken woman. She had 15 children. um, And when John Cotton fled to America, she and her entire family followed him. To Massachusetts. And very quickly, she took up a prominent role within the church in Boston and, and did this very Puritan thing, which was every Sunday afternoon, she would gather with a group of women in her home, and she would essentially recap John Cotton's sermon from earlier in the day and um, would lead a discussion based around the sermon. And this ladies-only discussion group grew and grew and grew and grew to the point where it was no longer just women, it was also men and women. And a man named Henry Vane, who was the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony at the time, actually came and became a part of that group. And it got to the point where there was like 80 people meeting in her home every week. Now, I don't know if you know a lot about the Puritans, but if you know anything about the Puritans, you know that they were not super progressive when it came to, like, gender roles. They were very traditional, very conservative, and so as you can imagine, just the idea that a co-ed group of people were meeting in a woman's home where she was essentially teaching them every week, like, that raised some eyebrows. But that wasn't the primary issue. The primary issue was that Slowly over time, Anne Hutchinson began not just recapping the sermon and leading a discussion. She began kind of editorializing and started inserting some of her own thoughts and opinions and some of her own theology into the mix as well. And one of the significant things that happened that made everybody kind of perk up, especially the leaders within the Puritan church and the colony itself, was that Anne Hutchinson started teaching what is sometimes known as a free grace theology. So let's press pause on that story for just a moment, and I want to consider a big word that Paul uses in our text today, and it's this word. You've heard this before undoubtedly, but it's the word justification. Paul uses this word justification not only in our text today, but he uses this word throughout the book of Romans. And more than likely, that's not a word that you, or really I, use in just kind of everyday normal conversation. But it is about the best word that we can use to describe what is taking place here. I want you to look with me at verse 21. Uh, Romans 3, verse 21. Let me just read through this real quick. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. If you remember what we've talked about over the last few weeks, the tension within the Roman church is a tension between Jews who have the law of Moses and Gentiles who have been raised outside of the law of Moses but who have come to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There is a clashing of cultures that's going on because the Gentiles don't feel like in order to follow Christ that they have to like convert To Judaism, they think, no, we're just following Jesus now. It doesn't mean we have to adopt Jewish rituals and practices and holidays and all of those kinds of things. And yet there were many Jews at the time, and even still today to some extent, who struggled to reconcile the fact that Jesus was the king of the Jews, he was the Jewish Messiah, that Jesus was thoroughly Jewish in his orientation and in his upbringing And yet, Jesus was not necessarily calling people to become Jewish, right? He was calling people to repent and believe in Him. And so there was all kinds of conflict that was going on within the church. And so what Paul has said is that the law is valuable, right? But the primary value of the law, and this is where we wrapped wrapped up last week, the primary value of the law is that it reveals our sin to us. And then he picks up and he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested or it's been made apparent or made obvious. It's been manifested through the law or apart from the law, I'm sorry, although he says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And that phrase, the law and the prophets, is a phrase that Paul would use to simply mean what we think of as the Old Testament. right? So the Scriptures tell us that God is righteous. In other words, God did not make some kind of a mistake in giving the law to the Jews, right? God didn't didn't think that would work, and then it didn't work, and now He's on to plan B. Paul says, no, 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 we see God's righteousness. We see it in the law and the prophets, and we see it apart from the law as well. Verse 22, he says, we see it, the righteousness of God, through faith, in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. We see God's righteousness manifested through faith now in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then he goes on and he says there's no distinction. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. There's no distinction. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So Jews, just because you have the law and just because you have things like circumcision doesn't mean that you have somehow lived up to God's glory. And Gentiles, it's the same for you also. Everyone is in this boat. We have all sinned. None of us measure up. None of us are moral enough or good enough to be righteous at the level that God is righteous. So there is no distinction there. We're all kind of in the same boat. And in the same way, verse 24, we are now all justified. This is this word. We're justified by His grace, which is just His unmerited favor. Right? We haven't done anything to earn it. We haven't done anything to obtain it for ourselves. His grace is given to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he says, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. Um, uh, That word sometimes is used to mean satisfaction or atonement, that Jesus ultimately paid a price in our place so that we could experience what Paul's describing here, so that we could experience the righteousness of God being manifested through faith in Christ for all who believe. And Jesus was put forward by God as this satisfaction, as this atonement. And ultimately, we are to receive that by faith. Now, you may see Paul using this word justified through faith in Christ, and you may assume that what he's saying there is that we are saved, that what he's talking about is salvation. And, and that's maybe a word that we use a little bit more often. We talk about being saved and getting saved and um, trying to help people get saved. But ultimately, salvation and justification, while they are interrelated, they are slightly different things. And Paul has talked about them both here in Romans thus far. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, here's what he said. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel "...because it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe." So when talking about salvation, Paul then essentially says, "...why do you need to be saved?" Right? If if he's not ashamed of this good news of Jesus Christ, and if he believes that the good news of Christ is the power of God to save all who believe, well then why do you need to be saved?" And that's what we saw in chapter, at the end of chapter 1 and all through chapter 2, is you need to be saved because God's wrath is actually being poured out towards you, right? God's wrath is being directed at you. Well, why is God's wrath being directed at you? Because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, That's what we need to be saved from, and God's wrath includes, uh, one, living in this broken world that we live in right now. It also includes things like death and hell. You don't just need to be saved from your sin. You don't just need to be saved from death. You don't just need to be saved from hell. Ultimately, we need to be saved from God's wrath, the consequences of our sin. But how is that accomplished? How are we saved from God's wrath? And the answer is justification. We are saved by justification. Our primary issue, listen, our primary issue is that God is righteous, but we are not. That's that's our biggest problem. It's not just immorality. It's not just sinfulness as a broad term. It's the fact that we are not God. It's the fact that we are not righteous. We are not holy in the way that He is holy. So in order to be saved, we have to not just be cleansed of our sin, we have to not just be saved from death and hell, we have to be made righteous before Him, and that's exactly what this is. Think of justification in this way, it's to be made just It's to be made right before God. That is ultimately what Jesus is accomplishing through the cross on our behalf. Because of his blood and because of his body, we are given the opportunity to be made righteous. Something that we could never do on our own, something we could never earn for ourselves, Jesus does on our behalf. He is a propitiation. He has satisfied God's righteous Desire for justice and judgment so that we can be made righteous. Jesus gives us his righteousness. Scripture says we don't really have any on our own. Our righteousness is like filthy rags, but Jesus imparts or imputes or kind of lays his righteousness on top of us. So here's kind of a mnemonic device that we can use to help us remember this. Um, think of A, B, C, and D. So first of all, this whole justification process is based on God acting. Like God is the one who's doing something here. This doesn't really begin with us doing something, right? We're the problem in this whole equation, right? Our sin, our unrighteousness is the issue. And so God acts, and so God acts on the basis of Christ, right? God acts by sending His Son. Think of John 3.16, right? Which which a lot of people see as a summation of the Gospel. God sent His only Son to die so that we don't have to forever be condemned in our sin, but so that we might actually obtain new life. So God acts, and He acts on the basis of of his son Jesus. But then see, it's essential that we place our faith in Christ, right? God has acted on the basis of Christ, but we place our faith in him to take part in what he is doing. So what you could put here is the word confess. Faith is ultimately not just about intellectual assent, it's not about mental belief Faith is ultimately about allegiance. It's about trust. Think of God as a king who has a kingdom, and we are people who are essentially pledging our allegiance to him. We are people who are saying to the king, my life is no longer mine, my life is now yours, and whatever you say, I will do. Whatever you call me to, I will respond with obedience. So we confess our trust, our allegiance to him. And then finally, that faith in the completed work of Christ based on God's acting is manifested through demonstration in our life. So ultimately, if God has acted on the basis of Christ, if we've confessed our allegiance to Him, then what that's ultimately going to look like in our life is good fruit, That's what Scripture says. If those things are true, then good fruit will be produced in our lives. Now, remember, as I said a few minutes ago, the tension in the Roman church is between the Jews who have the law and the Gentiles who don't have the law. Verse 31, Paul says, do we then overthrow the law? Like, based on all of this stuff about this all being a free gift, right, that, that ultimately we are being given the righteousness of Christ. We are being made right, made holy, made, like we are being justified before God. If those things are all true, then do we just throw the law out the window? And what he says in verse 31 is, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, this is where things get a little weird for some people. What is the law? Like, what is it? So, the law capital L, is sort of an umbrella term, um, and it primarily refers to three things. One, it refers to the moral law. Think uh, the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not have any other gods above me, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. The moral law. The next piece is what could be called the code of clean and unclean. And there are a few facets to this, but think of like the dietary restrictions that the Jews were under. Um, the common thing today is that Orthodox Jews don't eat pork. That's something that does go all the way back to the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. Um, We see a dietary code. Um, We see laws about uh, uncleanness with regards to people coming into contact with a dead body. They would have to be put out of the camp until they had gone through the ritual process of being made clean. Uh, Women who are on their menstrual cycle would be put out of the camp until they'd gone through the process of being made clean. As somebody who has a wife and four daughters, that sounds kind of awesome. So I'm hoping that we can maybe bring that back (laughs) So we have this code of clean and unclean and then finally we have what some people would call the ceremonial system. the ceremonial system. And this includes the holidays, like we've talked about, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the whole process of sacrificing, right? If you've ever read through the Torah, you see that all of these requirements were given to Moses um, that had to be handed down to the people of of like how the temple should be constructed and or the tabernacle rather and how the altar should be and, and how the actual process should go and what the priest should do and not do. That's all part of the ceremonial system. Now, here's what the New Testament says. The New Testament ultimately teaches that the ceremonial system and the whole code of clean-unclean are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That Jesus comes along, and as we talk about every week when we take communion, Jesus institutes a new covenant that is based on His blood. And in that new covenant, the New Testament teaches us that these things are not like done away with or just thrown out the window, but they kind of come to their natural point of fruition. They come to their natural point of fulfillment. And so even, um, even like Peter has to wrestle with this, because Peter is a good Jew, right? And Peter has always followed, say, the Jewish dietary laws. But in uh, the book of Acts... God shows Peter that he needs to let go of some of those things and that he needs to not discriminate against the Gentiles because they don't want to do those things and they don't want to follow the regulations and the rituals and that that's okay. But yet, the moral law stays intact. And the moral law actually predates the law of Moses. It actually predates the covenant that God made with Abraham. Think back to Cain and Abel, right? Right? Cain kills his brother Abel, but why is that wrong? Right? There, there's no like written law at that point. Like, God has not given some kind of code to mankind, and, and yet there's this sense that I know this is wrong, and God knows this is wrong, and God knows I know that this is wrong. And what Paul has actually alluded to already in the book of Romans is that this moral code not only predates the covenant with Abraham, but it exists to this very day in the new covenant built on Christ's blood, but yet at the same time that this is something that's simply written on the hearts of humanity. Right? God says the Gentiles may not have the law, but they do have this. You may not follow it. Right? You may not be obedient to it. But it's there. I've written it on your heart. And so the moral law continues to this day. And so when Paul says, Do we do away with this? Like, do we throw this out the window? By no means. By no means. If you go back to chapter two, you can read a little bit more about how God has written the moral law on the hearts of the Gentiles. Even though they didn't have a written moral code per se, we're all born with a certain understanding of right and wrong, even if we don't follow it. So, Anne Hutchinson and Henry Vane, the governor of the colony, and John Cotton, and many other people, and many other people throughout the centuries, have heard scripture like we've read today in Romans, and and here's what they've done. They've essentially said, if God's grace is being given to us as a free gift, and if it is in no way based on our good work, then it doesn't matter what we do, right? If we're being reconciled to God based on His grace alone, which is true, and He's not like, giving us the righteousness of Christ based on anything that we've done, our good work, our supposed good work, then, as a result, we can just do whatever we want to do. They took what was a correct belief and ultimately developed a bad theology around it. They took something that was true of God, but ultimately used it to mean something that it didn't mean and something sinful. And this is what's known as antinomianism. Um, And it's counterbalance. Let me draw one more thing. antinomianism and let's come over here on the other side of this spectrum and write moralism so antinomianism basically means that word antinomian means anti law right so i think the laws done away with in christ i don't have to follow it anymore I'm going to be reconciled to God purely based on his grace alone, so I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's antinomianism, and that's heretical. That's wrong. It's theologically incorrect. It's not even what Paul has said in our text today. Now, you could pull out a couple of verses in there and make it say that, but if you actually read the whole thing in context, that's not at all what's happening there. The other side of that spectrum, though, is moralism, which is more the side spectrum that says, no, I'm going to be saved based on my good work, me being a good person, me giving my money to charity, me helping homeless people. God's going to look at those things in my life, and he's going to give me some credit for those things. And ultimately, neither of those things are true, right? Ultimately, those are two ends of a spectrum, and each extreme is a false gospel. Like, neither of those things are the right path. The right path is actually the path of faith, right? Faith is me recognizing what God has done for me through Christ and not just intellectually believing it, not just going, yeah, I think that's true, but actually following in obedience what the Holy Spirit calls me to do, right? So as we've already read today, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the lives of the followers of Christ who are coming about during this period of time, as the early church is developing, as people are becoming believers, the Holy Spirit is like this mark of salvation in many ways. And as the Holy Spirit comes to indwell people, he, it's not just this thing that's meant to be like some kind of showy like magic trick that you have. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is coming to indwell your life so that you can have the power to obey Christ. Right? so that you can actually be filled with the presence of God and, and actually hear what he's calling you to do and be filled with his presence to do it. Right? So, so the goal here is that we would place our faith, our allegiance in the gospel, in the completed work of Christ, and that through faith in him, we truly give him our whole life. Right? It's not just going to church on Sunday. It's not just reading my Bible or having a quiet time or kind of engaging in religious rituals. Those things may be good and they may be helpful to you, but ultimately faith is about me saying, Whatever you want, right? Whatever you lead lead me to do, I'm going to seek to be obedient to you because of what you have done for me. God, because you have acted through Christ. To give his righteousness to me, I'm now turning over my whole life to you. This is why Paul in his writing says, the old man, like your old self, it has to go away. It's almost like you have to take it off, like a set of clothes, and you take on the new clothes of faith, the new clothes of faith that come with things like the Spirit himself, like God's actual physical presence dwelling within your life. So Ann Hutchinson and, and all of these other folks, and literally folks throughout the centuries, ha, have sought to say, yeah, 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 but really, God's grace is just a ticket for me to do whatever I want to do. And if that's what you think, you have totally missed this, because this last piece is what we sometimes call sanctification, Right? That we've been made right before God and that what should come out of that is that over time, progressively, that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. That as human beings, even though we still sin, even though we still mess up, if the presence of God is dwelling within you ideally, you should get five years down the road and be able to say, I am more like Jesus today than I was five years ago, right? You should get 10 years down the road and go, I'm more like Jesus today than I was five years ago. And that that's something that slowly yet progressively happens in your life. And I mean, it's one of those things where it's kind of hills and valleys and, you know, three steps forward and five steps back sometimes, but yet ultimately, through the power of the Spirit, hopefully we are moving forward in that. And so we have to be very careful because, like all these folks I'm talking about, we are prone to be tempted to move towards either extreme here. We are prone to be tempted to say, you know what, I'm just going to do what I want to do because God's going to have grace and mercy for me right? Praise the Lord. Or we go, you know what? I really think that what I do in my life is going to matter when I come before the judgment seat of God. And, and, and if like, I'm good enough on some level, if I've done enough good deeds that somehow the Lord's going to go, okay, I'll let you in to glory. But yet, if we think that's true, then what we're saying ultimately is that Jesus is not sufficient to save us that somehow I have to do something to save myself as well. And while we go to those extremes and we may say, eh, I'm not either of those things, I think we all have to realize that we get pulled in either of those directions. And and what's interesting for us is that some of us get pulled in both directions sometimes, depending on what we're dealing with and what we're going through. And so what I want our text today to do is to remind us of this truth, Like, remind us that we are not removed from this, that this is not just other people who make these mistakes, we make these mistakes too, and the enemy wants us to make these mistakes. He's great at lying to us and getting us to believe things that are not true of God. And so, let's stop there for this morning. I will finish real quick the story of Anne Hutchinson. She ultimately gets put on trial by the Puritans and is charged with sedition. Uh, she gets real weird in the trial and starts telling people that she receives words from the Lord that are like tantamount to scripture, and that everyone should believe her because what's coming out of her mouth is just as good as scripture is. And so, you know, the Puritans—they—they they thankfully don't burn her at the stake, right? They ostracize her, they exile her from the colony, and she ultimately gets killed by Native Americans in New York. So, happy end there to that story. Let's pray. What a weird way to end, I'm sorry. Uh, God, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for uh, your grace. But yet, Father, we recognize today that your grace is not just a free ticket for us to sin. And if we think that that is true, we have missed it. We are wrong. Father, forgive us of our sins and help us to awaken to the reality that you have literally given your only son so that we might find new life. Father, we thank you for the hope and the truth of Christ, and we ask you this morning um, to guide us through the power of your Holy Spirit and to help us see you for who you are and what you have done for us. We love you, Jesus. It is in your holy name we pray. Amen.